So, hey, if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 3 this morning, Psalm 3. We are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, and if you have a, a, a paper Bible or a, or a cell phone to, to open that up to, let's turn to Psalm 3. And as you're turning there, I want us to think back on a time this morning where you, you were pretty overwhelmed, where you were pretty stressed out, where things were kind of stacked up against you, you didn't have a whole lot of resources at hand, and as you looked at the problems that faced you, you realized, like, I, I can't do this on my own. In other words, it's kind of this time where you're kind of oftentimes holding things in your hands, right? I, I know for, for many of you who are, who are busy, you're working full-time jobs, you have pets and kids and all these things that are kind of grabbing your attention. And I, I, I can't help but think that when I'm, when I'm walking out of my car with my kids, my four kids, to the door of our house, it's, it's then that my, my kids hand me something to hold for them, right? And I've got my hands full with groceries or other things. It's like, hey, Dad, can you hold this? Or, or maybe it's on the way to the car from the beach or something. Hey, can you hold it? Well, you're holding one thing, and I have all this other stuff that I'm carrying. Why can't you hold this as well? And, and oftentimes, it's just too much, right? We, it falls out of our hands. We can't handle all of it at the same time. And, and oftentimes on a larger scale, this is what life looks like at times when stress enters the picture, when there are stressful situations. And if you think, if you think about your own life, when has this happened? Maybe you don't have to think too far back. Maybe it was this morning, getting your kids out of the door for, for church. But maybe it was a, more of a, a stressful season overall. So some examples uh, for you to consider. So maybe it was a period of depression. Maybe it was the end of a relationship with somebody, a, a divorce, a breakup. Maybe it was the loss of a, a parent. Maybe it's the loss of a job, a financial crisis, the death of someone else close to you. Maybe it was a betrayal, someone in your life who, who you thought was a friend, and as time went on, they revealed that they were not friendly in, in helping you at all. Or it can even be someone who's close to you that's experiencing some of these things. And either way, it's these, these seasons where you feel like you kind of have it all balanced, and then there's one more thing that gets added, and it starts to all fall apart. In 2 Samuel, we see that this, this happens to King David. I know we're in Psalms 3, but 2 Samuel, the, the second book there, it really speaks to what we're talking about here in Psalm chapter 3. And so we're not going to turn there, but if you want to just write down 2 Samuel for you to look back at later, King David, the legendary king of David, of Israel, I'm sorry, the killer of giants. He's a man after God's own heart, and he's seen countless victories on the battlefield. See, David was this completely, he was popular beyond belief. So many people loved David in his heyday. But as we know, the cracks in David's armor begin to show. And fresh off an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, we see that that things start to get really bad. He actually murders her husband Uriah in, in the cover-up, and David's immediate family begins to fall apart too. You see, if you look back at this, this story in 2 Samuel, we see that it all started when David's son, Amnon, violated and humiliated his, his half-sister Tamar. And, and in defense of his half-sister, David's other son, Absalom, killed Amnon. Because he realized, well, David's not doing anything in response to this terrible crime. And so I have to step in and do something on my sister's, sister's behalf. And so he starts this insurrection against David. And the Bible says that Absalom was very handsome 
and very winsome. And so he, he started this off very kind of passive aggressively and suddenly he would sit at the front gate of the palace and people would come to see David and request time with David because he's the king and he has resources and power and, and Absalom would intercept them and say, hey, I'm sorry, but you know, dad doesn't have time for you today. King David is all booked up. So uh, s- sorry, you can't see him, but, but Prince Absalom is available. I'm, I'm here, I can help you. How can I be of help to you today? And so Absalom would kind of sneak in there and because of his shrewdness, because of his treachery, he starts winning people over to team Absalom and people start leaving David. David finally gets to the point where he actually has to flee Jerusalem. King David had to leave his own palace and he was on the run because his son had run him out of town. And it was during the season that David wrote Psalm chapter three. And I hope this also puts some of your family drama into perspective because it can always be worse, I guess, right? It can always get worse. Can you think of a time where everything you are holding in your hands just start to fall apart? And for some of you, maybe that's right now. And David is in this season and Psalm three is considered the first Psalm in the category called Songs of Lament. Songs of lament, lament meaning grieving or crying out while in pain. And it begins with David crying out to the Lord in verses one and two and then shifts as he builds confidence in verse three on in who God is and what he's done for him. And I realize that sometimes we read our Bibles, especially the Psalms. The Psalms were written a very, very long time ago. But Psalm chapter three is incredibly practical for us today. If you are going through something this morning, if you are struggling with something, if you have kind of all these problems that are are mounting in your life, lean in this morning, listen as we walk through Psalm chapter three because Psalm three will help us answer the question this morning, where do I turn when it all falls apart? Where do I turn when it all falls apart? So let me read this for us (coughs) this morning. Psalm three. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and he slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So remember, King David, as he writes this, is discouraged, he's abandoned, he's left only with this small loyalist group that is, is there for him. And he's been attacked verbally. He's been attacked literally, physically. And his name has been dragged through the mud. And I think like David, as he looks around and he sees that his family is in shambles, just like you and I, David complains. He complains. Now here's the thing. We can learn something as we read Psalm 3 about how David complains. We can read and realize that David does not waste his time with meaningless gossip or or chatter or kind of just trying to find a, a listening ear or a shoulder to cry on. David complains up. 
He complains to God about his problems. He talks to God. And I would suggest that we do the same. So how, where, where do we turn when it all falls apart? Three things I want us to see this morning. So if you're no takers, it's three points, okay? The first thing is this. Bring your problems to God first. Bring your problems to God first. So in verse one, David says this. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. So not only has David's son Absalom kind of conceived this coup to get rid of David out of the throne, also half of the kingdom has left with Absalom and they're trying to, to fight David. They're trying to, to end David's reign as king. And you gotta understand, just to kind of be empathetic to David for a second, David is completely vulnerable here. These are all people that he thought were on his side. These are all people that, that he did favors for and he, he helped and he was good to as king. And now they've all turned on him and they want to end his life. And maybe you can relate to that because I think sometimes troubles happen like this. Sometimes it's just kind of, it's just in a moment's notice where you, you feel like everything's going good. And it's all sunshine and rainbows and the light, the world is full of optimism and, and awesome things. And, and then all of a sudden, a one problem shows up and then another problem compounds that issue and then another problem on top of that. And, and we see that this is what's happening with David. He's got so many people who are after him. Many are rising against me. This is a military term <clears throat> David uses. And he's kind of saying that these issues are, are battle-worthy, but I don't have the resources to fight this battle. I can't even count them. They're innumerable. In verse 2, it takes it a step further. It says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And this is especially heartbreaking and difficult because when someone is in trouble, at the very least we can say, well, God can help you. When someone's having an issue, you can at the very least say, well, God has, has your, your best in mind. God will help you through this. But the word on the street is for David is that David is even beyond God's help. Uh, David is beyond God's, God's helping hand. And so Charles Spurgeon speaks of this as well. He says, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. This is what's being said of David. And David knows that fear. You see, when David had an affair with Bathsheba and when he killed her husband, Uriah, to cover it up, the people of, of Israel had heard this. This had kind of leaked out in gossip and, and it started to come back and realize that maybe God had cursed David. God had turned his back on David and it's easy to understand why. And so when David is saying this, he's literally repeating what's being said around the kingdom. That while he repented and God forgave him, David still had to face the consequences for that sin. And that's kind of just a, a, a sub-thought here, just for us to remember that, that even though this in fact is not true in verse two, there's no salvation for him in God, God will save him and will sustain David and will help him. But the consequences of sin are very real. And it sometimes means writing Psalm 3 from a cave, a very cold, damp cave with a few people who are still loyal to you as opposed to writing Psalm 3 from a nice palace. The consequences are very real. And it's important for us to remember that because God will always, he will save us and help us and give us grace. But despite all that, David 
David goes to, goes to God first with his problems. David brought his problems to the Lord first. Now, let me just ask you, how are we at this? And I, I would say that for myself, I'm not good at this. I oftentimes will bother my wife with my problems, right? I'll bother my spouse with our problems. I'll, I'll tell her about the issues that I'm facing. I, I, don't, I don't do a very good job of, of turning to the Lord first at things. And I think it's kind of just human nature for us to do that because I, I see somebody who's a friend, I see somebody who's a parent or maybe a child or, or, or somebody who's, who, who's close to me and I want to confide in them and ask them, what do you think? How can, how can I get out of this? What do, you, what do you think about this? And all of those people are not equipped to give you what you need, right? And so we turn to God first and this is something that that's been difficult for us for a long time. In fact, one chapter over in Job, Job chapter four, you guys know the story, when, when Job was blessed beyond measure, God kind of cursed him, took all these things away from him, took his family away, took his health away, just to see what Job would do if Job would continue to worship and praise God through those afflictions. And early on in, in Job's kind of, uh, time in Job chapter 4, it shows his friends showing up and they're not very good friends, right? Right? So Job's talking about all these issues and their friends are like, hmm, well, maybe, maybe you did something wrong here. Maybe God has some beef with you or something. And there's, there's an issue that you have to shore up with God. And it doesn't sound like it's very hopeful. So you should probably just curse God and die, Job. I mean, not very encouraging at all, right? And while some of us may, may think that our friends are, are wiser than that and are more encouraging than that, and say, like, well, maybe they'll share just a special quote with me or something like that just to help me through this time, we are called as Christians to run to God first with our problems. A couple of verses for us to consider. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There are literally dozens of passages like these that remind us that God cares for us. God wants to hear our issues, that we should cast our problems and issues on him. <clears throat> and so at the end of verse two, we see that this is the case for, for David. And also at, at the end of verse two, I want us to see a word here that I just want to take a minute on, okay? So there's a word that will be uh, said here and repeated 71 times in the book of Psalms, and that's the word selah, selah. And it's a mysterious word. It occurs three times in this psalm after verse two, four, and eight. And the general consensus of the word selah is that it actually speaks to a musical notation. So remember, these psalms were written as, as poetry, but also some of them were written as songs to be sung and played. And so people think that selah was, was a reminder for the, the band or for those who are listening to stop and pause and reflect on what had been said, which is, which is awesome. It's, a, it's this really great way for us as well as readers to really consider verses one and two. But David, as he writes this down, that we would pause and reflect as we push in and find renewed confidence in the Lord in verse three. So the first thing we do as we come to God first, the second thing we do is this, put your confidence in the Lord. Put your confidence in the Lord. At the beginning of the psalm, David models a very relatable posture. 
Like he's discouraged, he's, he's overwhelmed, he's hurt, he's humiliated, but there is a shift that happens here in verse three. And in fact, James Montgomery Boyce, a theologian, comments on the shift. He says, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. So in other words, in verses three through six, what we're about to walk through here is that David remembers that he is not alone. And and Fiddle Church, neither are we. When you are in time of, of stress and problems in your life, you are not alone. And David starts to do two things. He starts to kind of play theologian, and he starts to, to play historian, okay? So David is theologian in that he, he re- reminds himself, this is who God is. What are people saying about God? Well, this is who God is in, in reality. And so he, he speaks good theology to himself. He also plays this role of historian and says, this is what God has done. This is what God has done in my life. This is what I can, I can kind of look back on and see how he's come through for me in the past. And David gets theological and historical as he reflects on his issues. First of all, because of who God is. Verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Let me just talk about this for a few minutes. I want us to see in Psalm three, verse three, how personal David is is writing here. He says this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, it's important for us to remember that David is not teasing a me-centered theology right now, okay? He's not saying, okay, so God, your your whole job is to be here for me and to bless me and to help me. That's the whole reason you exist. I'm the center of the world. That's not at all what David is actually saying. David is, is trying to get at the point of, hey, I'm in personal relationship with this God, And that personal relationship will be very impactful during times of trouble. A shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And in fact, in contrast to verse 2, these are not the words of somebody who has been abandoned by God. These are the words of somebody who has a relationship with God. In fact, it's important to note that God had never left David's side during this time, during this season of turmoil. The fact that David had been willing to turn to God first in verse one, and the way that he's wording this in verse three shows that David's relationship was still intact. Now, think back on your own life, think back to your own troubles, your own issues. Is this true of you? Is this true of you that when you are in, in, in kind of the thick of it, when you're in the middle of, of your problems, is this your testimony as well? Because I, I know for myself that it's usually in those times of trouble where I realize like, oh yeah, God, I, I remember I remember now. I'm supposed to be in relationship with God. I'm supposed to be reading my Bibles. I'm supposed to be uh, in, in prayer, in, in relationship, and pursuing the Lord. And it's usually then I realize that I'm far from God. It's that kind of the orange light on my dashboard in my car that makes me remember, oh yeah, I guess it's, it's been a while since I changed my oil, right? I, I should probably do that. And, and for David, it's the opposite. We realize for, for David that David had always been in step with the Lord. And so this is something that we should be pursuing as well. Not as a result of trouble, but in the midst of trouble. The Lord is my shield. 
The Lord is my shield. Now this, this is kind of a, an, a, an example from Genesis 15:1 when God says, fear not Abraham, Abraham who had just finished destroying his enemies. Fear not Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So this is the confidence of those who trust in the Lord. God is a shield who protects us in times of trouble. Now, obviously, we all know what a shield is, right? It's this round or square kind of military tool. You hold it in one hand, and you deflect kind of arrows or spears or swords. And in the, the midst of battle, it's very helpful. On the other hand, you have your sword or your spear or whatever. Now, here's the limitation, though, of a shield. Some of you guys know this already. The problem with the shield is that it only covers one side of your body, right? And so as you hold a, a, a shield, you can move it and such, but you can't really get both sides of your body covered. But what David says here in Psalm 3, verse 3, he talks about a, a different type of protection. He says, the Lord is a shield about me, meaning that God, you are, you are a kind of, of defense and help in times of trouble that I could never get in this world. You protect me at all sides. And you see, church, we too have this sovereign, complete, unfailing protection in God if we simply ask for it. The Lord is my glory. Now, this may be a confusing sentence because glory in Scripture usually refers to God's glory. But what David is saying here is he's saying that his sense of self-worth, self-identity is rooted in God. You see, he's been pushed out of his kingdom. He's been taken off the throne. And yet again, David preaches good theology to himself here. He's saying, look, my worth was never in my throne or my city or my subjects or resources or riches. David is literally saying, I am somebody not because I was king, but because I belong to the king. That is where I find my worth. That is where I find my glory. And think about this for ourselves, church. How many times in our life, I, I realize that when, when problems kind of get bigger and bigger and there's more and more to deal with, oftentimes we start wondering. It's like, hey, am I even in the right job? Am I even doing the right thing I'm supposed to be doing right now? What am I doing with my life? Do I even know what I'm doing as a parent? Do I even know what I'm doing here at work? And, and you start to kind of self-doubt self creeps in. You start to wonder about your own ability to get things done. And it's in those times where we are reminded by David that it's not about what we do or what we bring to the table. It's, it's David saying, sons and daughters of God, you have worth because you belong to God. That is where we get our glory from. You are the lifter of my head. The Lord is the lifter of my head. And this phrase provo provokes kind of powerful imagery here. When we think about this, we, we realize that, that David is in this time where he is mourning. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, when David's son's, uh, son Absalom, his plan comes to light, David has to realize that he has to get out of town. He has to actually leave the palace. And so in kind of thinking about logistics and thinking about who's coming with me, who's staying, he starts to grieve and starts to mourn the situation he's in. Second Samuel 15, 30 says, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. Maybe this sounds familiar to some of you. I, I've, I've had days like this, right? Where where you just want to draw the curtains and, and crawl into bed and hide for a little while. 
And David has nothing to lift his head about. But he reminds us and himself here in Psalm 3, verse 3, that the Lord is the lifter of his head. And this, this idea comes from um, in, in ancient times when a subject would throw himself in front of a king and say, hey, help me. This is my case. Let me plead my case to you. I've been wronged in this way. Would you help me? Would you, would you take justice on my behalf? And the king would listen to their case. And depending on how they, how they kind of landed on it, if they were against them, they would put their heel on the back of their neck. And it's not to hurt them, but as a way of saying, you know what, I'm not with you here on this. But if, if they were going to be vindicated, the king would bend down and lift their head up. And this is what David is talking about here. David is saying, I have presented my case to the Lord. And I am confident that when he hears my case, he will lift my head. And that's what God will do for those who trust in him. He will lift our heads as well. And so all of this allows David to put his confidence in God and who he is. But just like David, we also put our confidence in God because of what God has done in the past for us. You see, it's, it's, it's easy to forget that stuff. It's easy to forget what God has done for us year after year in the past. But, but the Bible is telling us that we must remember what God has done. What has God done for us? So Psalm 3, 4 through 5. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. David is describing here a prayer life and he, re he realizes that in the past, I've prayed before and God answered me from his holy hill. In, in the past, I've lost sleep about things and then the Lord sustained me and he allowed me to rest well. And he's again reminding himself, God, you've done it before in the past. You'll do it for me in the future. You are always there for me. And you notice here in verse four, the urgency of David's prayer. He says, I cried out to the Lord. You see, there's a time I think for, for con contemplative walking through the woods and journaling and there's nothing wrong with that. Please do that. But there's also time where we don't have time for that. We don't have space of mind to, to be that intentional. And so we just cry out and say, God, help me. God, would you, would you step in and help me, Lord? I need your help. I don't have what it takes to get this done. And so would you help me? And it says that it was from his holy hill that he answered him at the end of verse four, which is ironic again, because David is the one who is used to hearing requests from his throne room. And here he is now asking God, the king of the universe, to, to have sovereignty over the situation and to fulfill his request. And because of that, David finds rest. Verse five, he's able to find rest. He's sustained when he sleeps. Verse six, let's keep going here. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around so what we're talking about here is a literal, this isn't hyperbole. This is thousands of people that want to get after David, that are after him, but David is not afraid. You see, through this, this season of change and transition for David, through the season of, of suffering, David realizes that God is building something in him. 
God is not done with David and he's building courage in him. He has lots of reasons to be afraid. He has lots of reasons to be uncertain about the future. But David realizes that my courage is in the Lord. In fact, um, H.P. Charles, a theologian, says this. He says, courage is just fear that has said its prayers. That's what courage is. It doesn't mean that we're just magically unafraid. It, it, it means that we, we are fearful, and when we pray to God, the one who sits on the throne, we realize that he has the resources to help us in our time of need. And the Bible talks about this in terms of, of faith. And because of that, we have courage to face what we're dealing with, despite the numbers that are against us, despite the, the, the things that are the opposition that we may face. And David is starting to understand this. And, and I hope, church, that we understand this as well. It doesn't mean that we have to walk through life feeling just like numb to anything that comes up. It, it means that we know who's in charge. We know who ultimately has the last say. In Psalm 27, David continues this thought and he says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So, so far in these first six verses, we've seen that we, we have to come to God first with our problems. We've seen that we can put our confidence in God because of, of who he is and what he's done. We don't despair. We don't worry. We don't wring our hands like the rest of the world. We, we go to God in confidence. But finally, number three, last point is this. We want to remind ourselves that God will set things right. You see, ultimately, it is God and it is his power, it is his will that will have the last say. See, Psalm 3 is a prayer to God, but it's not until verses 7 and 8 that David actually makes any requests. But when he does, he's very specific. Okay, so verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. You see, David's bold response here is an example of what we call an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory psalm. And in layman's terms, that, that simply means kind of, hey, go get them, Lord, right? You have the resources, you have the power, would you take care of this? Because his stress is high, and I, I think at times there's, there's times where we want to take things into our own hands, right? But David has a different approach. David realizes that it's much better to ask God to fight his battle, and, and he says something odd here in verse 7. He says, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. Now, I don't know if, I, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that would be, do much damage, but uh, I, I'm not sure if any of you have ever been slapped in the face before. Um, I, I've been slapped in the face two times, okay? They, they both happened before I was 18, so I'll just kind of chalk it up to youthful behavior. I won't get into that story today, but, but here's, here's what I'd say. <laughs> if you've ever been slapped in the face before, I'm not promoting it whatsoever. You, you should slap people in the face, okay? Don't, don't go around doing that to people. But when that happens, you kind of remember your place in the world, just for a minute, right? You kind of realize that whatever you were doing, you shouldn't be doing. You, you kind of realize that, oh, I, I kind of was reaching here and I thought I could do something over here, and then that happens. You get struck in the cheek and, and things change. And I think that's what David is saying here in verse 7. He isn't saying, hey, Lord, would you just destroy this person? Would you just kill them and murder them? He's saying, would you strike them on the cheek? And as a way of saying, look, 
Can you, can you put them in their place? Would you restore order here, Lord? Things have gotten out of whack. Would you restore order? And at the end of verse seven, he goes a step further and he says, you break the teeth of the wicked. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, again, this sounds kind of violent and harsh. And it kind of makes me cringe a little bit thinking about teeth breaking. But, but here's what I would, I, I would say about verse seven, the end of verse seven. I think what David's actually doing here is he's actually showing some restraint in kind of a weird way. Because again, David is not saying, Lord, would you destroy my enemies? Here, if you read through the Psalms, there are lots of times when David explains very explicitly what he wants God to do to his, their kids and to their enemies and to, the, to their families and their crops and all these things that, that where David says, hey, God, would you do this? But in Psalm 3 verse 7, he says, you break the teeth of the wicked. And I, I, as, as I kind of studied here, I, I kind of realized that what God is, what David is saying is that he, he's asking God to take away the threats that these people pose to him. These people want to devour him. These people want to bite. They want to, they want to wound him. And David is saying, break those teeth of the wicked so that they aren't able to hurt me any longer. And he's actually showing some restraint. Now, it seems harsh, but at the same time, I think this is, not what, this is not what the world does usually. Usually, if somebody wrongs somebody else in the world's standards, we're supposed to respond somehow, right? Like there's a lot of people who are kind of, you know, uh, understand how the world works. They won't say this out loud, but at the end of the day, people really believe in revenge and vengeance, I think people that you work with, people that you interact with, this is a very normal thing that, hey, when you're driving, uh, you know, this is kind of a cliche example, when you're driving on the freeway and someone cuts in front of you, like, you, you kind of just feel like you're supposed to at least like pull up next to them and give them a dirty look or something, right? There's supposed to be some action or maybe you go as far as pulling out in front of them and, and kind of tapping your brakes a little bit just to let them know like, hey, you know what? Hey, cut it out. I'm here. All right, don't, don't do that again. And we're supposed to respond. And in fact, if you look online, there are lots of examples of actually people who not only uh, are okay with revenge, but actually encourage revenge. It's crazy. I found this website that has all these steps in how we're supposed to take revenge on our own hands. All right? This is obviously not something I'm promoting here. This is something that is just kind of amazing that the world thinks this way, okay? Just a, a quick list here. Uh, number one, how to get revenge, get mad then get even. It's justice, plain and simple, okay? Number two, revenge is healthy. Don't listen to those who tell you otherwise. You're teaching people to behave better. You're actually doing them a favor. At the same time, you're getting icky, poisonous feelings out of your system once and for all. What could be healthier? This is amazing. Revenge is excellent self-therapy. It's far cheaper than a therapist and much healthier than picking it out on a box of donuts, Number four, always aim your revenge where it hurts the most. Go right for the jugular. Number five, let your creativity blossom. Don't go for cliches like slashing tires. Boring, be original, enjoy yourself. Give your marketing experience they'll never, ever forget. And then number six, if you have to do something you're not proud of, be sure to cover your tracks well. <laughs> so obviously, I'm, I'm not saying we do this, but I am, I am pointing out that I, I think that whether or not we know this, kind of right up in front of our brains or not, this is something that doesn't come easy for us. It doesn't come easy for us to, to be, be wounded or be wronged by somebody and allow God to step in and take care of that. 
But that is exactly what David is saying that he wants God to do. He, he's saying that, you know what, I, I want to respond. I want to fight back. I want to take vengeance in my own hands. But just like Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Paul reminds us, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So you see what we're talking about here. The reason we don't have to get revenge is because God will repay. God will make things right. And ultimately, God has so many more resources than we do to make those things right. And as soon as we step out on our own, as soon as we say, you know what, I'm going to take things in my own hands, we're, we're, we're saying that we, we don't believe God will we'll do this. Let's finish this out. Verse 8, finally, it says, David declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember, this is in contrast to, to verse 2, just a couple lines up, when it says many people are saying there's no salvation in God for David. But David is now saying, confidence in hand, realizing who God is, realizing what God has done. He's saying, you know what, salvation, it's not up to man, it's up to God. God has the last say about what happens. And ultimately, we must too remember that, that salvation belongs to God. God does not need anything, need any of our help to help produce salvation. God alone saves. And so Christians, non-Christians, as we think about how God interacts with us, we don't do anything. There's no, there's no righteousness that we bring to the table. All we bring to the table is our own shame and our own sin and our own need for saving. God does the rest. And then David says at the end, your blessing be on your people. And this, this final benediction of Psalm 3, it makes it clear that this personal testimony, these, these verses of one through, one through eight, it's not just about David and his personal story. It's not just because David was, was fancy and he was king of Israel and, and God had a special thing for him. It's because we see that actually anybody who has their trust in the Lord, this is available to you. That what God did for David, God will do for all of you. And it ends with that word, Selah that this is a truth that we can rest in, that we can reflect upon and think about. So this morning as we close, I, I realize that many of you, as you think about the, this crazy kind of season of life that David was in, on the run from his family, completely lacking resources, some of you know exactly how David felt. Some of you walked into this room this morning with a lot of problems or maybe with just one big one and, and it kind of paints everything about how you do your work and how you parent and how you have friendships. It, it, it all revolves around this issue. And maybe for you, it's even the literal rebellion of a child, just like David. Or it may be something less catastrophic, but no less painful. But whatever it is, I want you to hear this morning that when it feels like everything has fallen apart, when the rug has been pulled out from under you, we can look to Psalm chapter 3. And we see this, this roadmap for how we respond when everything falls apart. That we can look to God first, that we can be confident in who God is and what he's done. And we can ultimately be confident because God will do the work that is necessary to be done. You see, there, there is hope for those of you in trouble this morning. 
If you are facing something, facing an issue, facing a, a financial deadline, if you're facing something that just seems completely overwhelming, and what the psalmist didn't know then, but we know now is that there is hope for the troubled soul, and his name is Jesus, and he became a troubled soul. See, there is hope in our suffering because Jesus came into our suffering and he suffered just like us and he knows how that feels and there's hope in our brokenness because Jesus came into a broken world and allowed himself to be broken on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel this morning is the ultimate hope that we have when we're left standing with nothing but the pieces in our hands. Not if, but when, you feel like you've been abandoned. Jesus says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not if, but when you feel like your enemies are surrounding you, they're ready to pounce, they're ready to devour and tear you apart. It is Jesus' words that remind us when he says, peace, be still. Not if, but when you feel heartbroken, when you feel like your heart has just been dropped out of your body, only Christ is able to say, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. And church, when we put our belief and our faith in the Lord, we are sitting there realizing that we have these promises that David talked about in Psalm 3, verse 3, that, that God is our shield. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our heads. That is the hope that we have this morning. Let's bow our heads as we pray together. God, I thank you so much that you do not leave us in this life to deal with our own issues. God, we would be completely and utterly sunk and ruined. God, we would have no hope. We would have, we would have no help, Lord, because ultimately all that we can bring, all of our strength and our skills and our abilities, all the things that we bring to the table ultimately fail at the end of the day. But God, we, we thank you and give you glory and we praise you because you are a God who sees us when we pray, hears us when we pray, and you respond. And God, ultimately, we can have confidence knowing that, that you, you got this. You, you have our backs. You, have, you, you cover us from all around. You are the lifter of our head. You are the encourager of our heart. God, I pray for those who are facing something this morning. That seems insurmountable. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a financial stress. Maybe it's something that no one else knows about, Lord, but you know. And God, would you meet the people of your church in this time, in this place now, to, to speak words of encouragement over them, to tell you, to tell them, Lord, how much you care for them, how much you see them in their affliction. So God, we trust you. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.